right, hello, good morning, Red Hills Church family. I love all these conversations. We could talk forever, but we'll, we'll do that later. So good morning, I'm so glad that you're here. My name's Kate, I'm the communications director around here, and I'm so glad that you have joined us this morning. We are going to invite our auditorium hosts up to take our tithes and offerings. This is something we do as a church family. Um, as part of our worship, we like to worship through generosity. And so if you are new or you're visiting, feel no obligation. This is something that we like to participate in and make part of our gathering. Also, if you are new or maybe you've joined us for a few weeks, we would love to get to know you. So in the seat backs, either in front of you or behind you, you could ask a friend to like pass you a connect card. Uh, there are just little connect cards with a couple pieces of information. If you would fill that out and take that to our new guest tent, it's kind of like that direction. After the gathering, we have a little gift just to thank you for joining us. This is also the place where we take prayer requests. So you could also take that little card to the tent at the end. We have four things either starting today or happening today. So I'm excited to tell you about these. The first is next steps. This is our class where you can get connected with Red Hills. This is the place, the very first step in learning the heart behind Red Hills, why we do what we do. And this is the place where we get to know a little bit about you as well and see how you can get connected. So if you'd like to join Next Steps, you can meet Pastor Brett in the lobby. He's wearing the shirt. He's kind of tall. He's got a beard. So you can find him out there after the gathering. He will take you over to our Grant Street house on the other side of our tent. Also today, our groups are starting today. We are so excited. If you are hosting a group, would you guys stand with me? I'd love to like honor you and just say like, oh yeah, awesome, we're excited. Yes, hi guys. So we have got groups starting today. We have 21 groups. We have over 100 people already signed up and they are starting this week. So they, um, we've got them on every day of the week. We've got them mornings, evenings. There is a group for you. We've got groups for married couples and young adults. And we even have our youth is doing groups this time. They've got their own separate time for middle school and high school. So there are so many options. You can head over to our website. If you see some people, you can like stock their pictures on there. Their pictures are on their group and see and find a way to get connected, find community and grow in your relationship with Jesus. Also today, um, this afternoon, we have a worship interest meeting. This is for worship and tech. If this is a, um, a place where you would be interested in serving, maybe you are musically gifted or you'd love to learn about tech, camera operations, and online gatherings, we would love to get connected with you. This is a Q&A time just to get to know you, and then also we can talk about audition opportunities if you would like to. So uh, Pastor Ashley will be here. This is also for our main gatherings and for our youth as well. So if you're interested in serving in worship, maybe in our youth group, that would be great. We'd love to meet with you then. All right, the last thing is October is Ministry Appreciation Month. And so on behalf of our church council, I just want to make you aware, this is something we've done for about five years to thank our pastors and our staff just to show them how much we appreciate them. This is the time of year where we um, just write a thank you card or get them a little gift card if you feel led to. But this is a time to just show them a little bit of appreciation. I don't know if you've served in ministry or worked in ministry, but it can be a 24-7, 365, and I watch these people as they 
love our church family, and they serve, and they pour out of themselves. So if you'd like to write them a card, there's cards and little lists in the lobby, and there's more information on the website if you'd like to check that out. I did it. I got it. I got them all. All right. Could you welcome Pastor Lane to the stage? Thank you, Kate. Thank you a lot. Thank you a lot. Sure, we'll go with that. Um, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Lane. Uh, I wanted to start this morning before we get into the message just with a moment of prayer. You know, there's, there's lots of things that happen throughout the world all the time, and it's hard to keep up with all of it. But there was um, kind of a, a big tragedy that happened yesterday uh, during a soccer game in Indonesia. Um, 127 people were trampled and killed in this game. And uh, they're saying it's one of the most violent and um, horrible sports games in history. And so uh, I was just struck by that and thought as the church, we just hold up people in prayer. It's part of what we do. And I also realized that there are probably people in the room who are carrying their own burdens, that there are secret burdens that you're carrying. There are things that are happening in your lives. There are tragedies that are happening close to you. Um, there's more flooding that's continuing to happen because of the, the hurricanes, right? So let's just start our morning with a posture of prayer and ask for God's mercy. If you want to hold out your hands in front of you like this as a posture, there's nothing magical about this. Um, this is just a way to posture your body in a way that reflects our heart. I find it helps me posture my own heart. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are faithfully gathering together to learn from your word and to worship you. And in the midst of this, we see that um, it's always the case, but sometimes it feels more so that our world is in trouble. Um, we want to pray for all the families and people affected by this tragedy in Indonesia. We just ask that your mercy would be poured out like oil, that uh, there would be peace, at least the, the start to peace, that there would be the beginning of a mourning process and a grieving process, and um, that people would begin to experience some kind of healing. Lord, we continue to pray for all the things that are continuing to happen in our nation and around the world. There's so many to name. And Lord, I pray for every individual person in this room who is dealing with their own tragedy in their own world. We open up our hands to you and we say that even in difficult times, we trust you. We put our faith in you. We ask that in this trust and in this exercise of faith, that we would find peace. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been in a series in the book of James. If you've been coming to church, you're aware of this. It's called Wisdom Lived Out. And basically the idea is that we live in a very anxious world. Lots of information, lots of things stirring about. And so we're looking to the scriptures, particularly the book of James and the teachings of Jesus to ask how do we have wisdom in this world? Because typically the solutions that the world will offer us feel like a solution. But what they actually end up doing is perpetually getting us stuck in more anxiety. And so Jesus offers us a different way to find, uh, find peace. So uh, James starts out the letter with this idea that we are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he identifies himself. This word doulos means servant. It means that everything I have, everything that I am, I give fully to Jesus. And it's in that surrender that I actually find peace, right? So last week, we talked about how this life with faith in Jesus is something that should cost us everything. 
It should cost us everything. When we make the plans for our lives, are we considering first the kingdom of heaven or are we considering first our own agendas? Right? Because our own agendas, our own strategies, they are birthed out of an arrogance that I am, at the end of the day, the best master of my own fate. And actually, that, ang- that, that arrogance is actually birthed out of a fear and anxiety that comes when I feel out of control, right? So we attempt to manipulate our lives in order to retain and generate more control. But instead of that giving us peace, what it actually does is it makes me feel more anxiety, Right, we use the analogy of the Chinese finger trap, right? Kind of a cheesy thing, but like you put your fingers in the Chinese finger trap and the harder I try to make myself free, the more entrapped I become. It's only when I surrender that I'm able to experience freedom, right? It was cheesy, but I'm sure you thought about it this week. I bet you did. The more I fight for control, the more entrapped I become. And Jesus promises us that when we surrender ourselves fully to his plan to renew all things, the kingdom of heaven, that we will have everything we need, right? So in the passage last week, James used this example of business people who are going out and they're trying to accumulate wealth, and they don't consider the kingdom of heaven and the plans of God. Well, in the passage this week, James is going to double down on this illustration, and he rebukes those who have allowed their own agendas to supersede the hope and the way of Jesus. They have been successful in the eyes of the world. They've won. They've figured it out but they have forsaken the principles of the kingdom. They've accumulated worldly wealth, but they've abandoned heavenly values, right? So buckle up. This one's a doozy, okay? We're going to be in James chapter 5, verse 1. Now, this is one of those passages that when I read it, it felt like James was reaching back from the history and just like slapping me in the face repeatedly, right? Because it's about wealthy people, I'm not saying that I'm like super wealthy or anything. Like I drive a Kia Sorento, not a Lamborghini. But even the poorest of us here in the U.S. were some of the richest people in the world, right? We are. So I was looking at my life, situated comfortably in the American middle class, right? I have home. I have a transportation. I have, you know, plenty of food and clean running water. I even have what most people in the world would consider to be luxurious, right? Like life is, is pretty good for me, physically speaking. So while reading this passage, I started to feel really guilty, as if James were talking to me. Now, sometimes when we read the scriptures, we can get to a place where we maybe don't like the way it makes us feel, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. But I think we need to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Because one of the main points of this book, of the scriptures, of this thing that we call the Bible, is to generate transformation and renewal in the hearts and minds of those who read it, right? That's what it's supposed to do. But in order to do that, to experience transformation and renewal, we first need to accept that there are things in my life that need to be transformed and renewed, right? Those things are likely evil, and they'll probably hurt coming out. But it's a good pain, right? That's the pain that's the, it's the mark of goodness taking a hold of a person's life. So apparently, during the age of the early church, I learned this from a professor buddy of mine, that before what we have now is like the canonized New Testament, right? We, we had all these writings in circulation amongst Christian communities. Christians were passing along and they were teaching from and being transformed by these letters and the, these epistles that would one day become the New Testament. 
Well, part of the process of confirming that a work would join the body of the Holy Scriptures was an experience that they called defiling of the hands. Have you heard of this? Basically, it means that when I hold it, does it make my hands feel unclean, figuratively speaking? Basically, the question is, does this work convict me? Is it moving me towards change, transformation, and renewal? The first step on the way to renewal is the awareness of my own fallenness, my own brokenness, right? The corruption in my life. In other words, the first step to renewal and change is guilt. Guilt. Okay, I spoke about this last week, so I apologize for the redundancy, but I think this is an important principle. Guilt is an important, holy facet of restoration. Guilt makes me aware of how my thoughts and actions are harming myself and harming other people. It's called empathy, right? Without guilt, I would have a really difficult time differentiating between acceptable and helpful behavior and harmful behavior. Guilt is a helpful ally. Now, shame, shame is different. Shame pushes me into hiding and isolation, keeps me in the dark. And healing cannot take place in isolation. Healing has to take place in community, right? So guilt, another way to say this, guilt is feeling bad about what I've done. Shame is feeling bad about who I am, right? Guilt, feeling guilt is something that we should embrace. This is good. This means that our conscience is intact. It means that God is still at work transforming us into the best life that he wants for us. Shame should be expelled from the community of faith because it has no place in the process of restoration, right? They're different. So sometimes we need to hold the scriptures in our hands and allow them to feel defiled. Sometimes we need to be shaken out of our apathy to realize just how bad something is, right? And the scripture is good at this. It's kind of like when you're watching an episode of that show Hoarders. Have you seen this show? For those of you who don't know, hoarding is this psychological condition wherein a person hoards an inordinate amount of stuff to the point where like they can sometimes literally bury themselves in their own houses, right? So in the show, Hoarders, psychologists, they partner with professional cleaners and organizers to physically and mentally help them dig their way out of this nightmare, right? It's really sad, but it's also really fascinating and really kind of satisfying to watch someone's life be transformed. But sometimes it gets so bad in there that like animals like rodents and cats will like get lost in the home and end up dying and they don't know where they are. The home will get so cluttered that, peop that people will start using the restroom just kind of anywhere they can find space. Some of you are like, why are we talking about this? Bugs and pests are like infesting the home and there's mold growing on the walls. So it starts to smell pretty bad, you can imagine, right? But you know when you've been in a place that smells really bad and you've been there for a while, what starts to happen? You start to get used to the smell, right? Until eventually you kind of don't notice it anymore. It's like when you have a friend come over and it's like, you have pets, don't you? And it's like, why did you say that? <laughs> right? Eventually you stop noticing it when you live in it, right? Sometimes it takes an outside voice to come in and to experience the smell to help people realize the magnitude of the situation, right? We all have this tendency to be mental, emotional, and spiritual hoarders. We block ourselves in with our ways of thinking. And the scriptures can open up the front door and allow the spirit to come in and begin the process of healing. But that process is a process. It's not always instantaneous. It can be this slow 
work and require us to get our hands dirty and be willing to be vulnerable in ways that are very embarrassing. But it all starts with the awareness that we are living a fraction of the life that God desires for us. That's the heart. God doesn't want you to live this way. There is something better for you. Let's get rid of all of this. Let me show you something better, right? That being said, buckle up. This is one of those passages that definitely uh, opens up the nostrils, all right? So James, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> okay, so our first thought when reading something like this is, well, this passage isn't really talking about me. Like, I'm wealthy in, like, the global sense, but I'm not so rich that I'm, like, oppressing people. Okay, well, set aside the fact that the shirt I'm wearing was probably made in the sweatshop. We'll set that aside, defiling of my hands. It's not like I'm willfully refusing to pay people the wages that they deserve for, like, the services they provide. Like, I tip and stuff, right? But here's the thing. The scriptures never let us get away with saying, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I would argue that if you could ever get to the place where you look at the scriptures and you think, well, this isn't really addressing me, then you've probably missed the point of the teaching. You've probably missed a point of the scripture. Again, James is a letter that is full of the wisdom of Jesus' teachings that are in circulation at this time. And Jesus tried to hammer home the idea to tell us that sin is in our hearts long before it's in our words or our actions, right? On the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. Well, what I'm telling you is if you look at another person with lust, you've already failed to acknowledge the dignity of another human being. You've already failed to acknowledge the beauty and the gift of sex, and therefore, you've missed it. He says, you've heard it said don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart towards anyone else, if you tell anyone that they are a fool out of spite, you're already lifting your hand against your brother or your sister. You've already become a murderer in your heart. Look, the same evil that is present, that is present in a murderer is present in me. When I feel violent attitudes towards other human beings, the same evil that is present in a serial adulterer is present in me when I lust after anyone that I'm not married to. In the same way, the heart of the, of the rich oppressor is present in all of us before we become rich. In the same way that an affair is the progression of lust, adultery, that violence is the progression of hatred, murder, oppression is the progression of greed or materialism. Ah, now there's a word that we understand as American people, right? Materialism. Materialism is really what James is getting at here. And materialism is not simply having a lot of stuff. It's structuring my life around the stuff and using that stuff to elevate myself, right? One scholar said this about this passage in James. It must be said that these wealthy people are not so judged merely because they are rich. 
Rather, it is because they were misusing their wealth for self-indulgent living rather than helping the poor. Generosity is not about how much you give. It's about the posture of your heart. That's what generosity is. There's a pastor that maybe you've heard of him. His name is Rick Warren. Okay, he wrote the best-selling book in the world. I think still to today. Somebody fact-check me. But I think it's still today. today the Purpose-Driven Life. That was Rick Warren. And he's a pastor of a huge megachurch, or he just retired, actually. Pastor of a huge megachurch in Southern California called Saddleback. Say what you will about the megachurch model and Rick Warren's sermons or whatever. Say what you will about the guy's style and ministry. There's something about his character that's always blown me away. He got to the point where he made so much money. I mean, like, best-selling book in the world, right? He's making so much money that he started reverse tithing. Basically, the tradition is that you tithe 10% of your income to the local church. He started tithing 90% of what he made to the local church. And then eventually, he just stopped taking a paycheck altogether. And he just pastored the church for free for like decades. <laughs> if you go to his house, it's a nice house, but it's the house that he's grown his family up in. It's not a mansion. This is one of the richest Christians probably in the world. Generosity was at the heart of Rick Warren before he became a wealthy man, which is why he lived the way that he did, right? When we understand that we are doulos, a servant, that everything I have doesn't actually belong to me, that nothing is actually mine, it allows me to live this way. But that's really tough for us to swallow, isn't it? We don't like to think that money is something that can get in the way of me living my life for God because Christianity is about me reading my Bible in the morning and praying and like being nice to people, right? Like what does money have to do with it? But you realize that Jesus talked more about money than he did about like almost any other sin. He talked more about money than he did about sex. He talked more about money than he did about uh, other things. Violence. <laughs> I had a word there and it escaped me. <laughs> But money was a big deal to Jesus. Money was the pay-per-view competitor of our devotion to the Lord. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy, right, he says that the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from their faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Loving money will pierce you with many sorrows? That's what Paul's getting at. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says that it's easier for, a, or it's more difficult for a rich man to, to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Because it is hard for us to hold loosely what we've been convinced we are entitled to. Right? It's not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to idolatrize, 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 help me. Idolize, thank you. I was like, where is it? <laughs> oh, I love college. Um, yeah, it's not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to idolize, idolize yourself. I'm going to stop saying it. You get what I'm saying, right? Hoarding wealth. This can be the way that we do that, that we idolize ourselves, right? Think about what worship is, right? Worship literally means to ascribe worth to something. It's something that I bow to, something that that I, I put my resources and affection towards, right? What, what, is, what am I ascribing worth to in my life? Is it, is it money? Is it myself? Because money can be a way that I worship myself. Now, it is important to talk about what the scripture is not saying, right? The Bible is not condemning entrepreneurship or creativity and the ability to make money. 
That is not what James is condemning. Read closely. It is not condemning those who have the skills to gain money. We need entrepreneurs in this world and in the church. We need people who are savvy with finances and resources, who are good stewards of what God has given us. We actually need that. It's a creative mandate. I want you to think about the Garden of Gethsemane for a second. This was the place where Jesus knelt on the night he was betrayed to pray to God, right? Jesus and his disciples actually frequently visited the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane in the Aramaic means gath shemene, which means oil press. The Garden of Gethsemane was an olive orchard. It was an olive orchard where the the olives that grew in that grove were taken to press into oil. Olives were one of the most lucrative businesses in the entire Roman Empire at the time, which means that someone owned this orchard. And whoever that someone was, they were probably pretty wealthy. But that garden became a place of retreat and prayer for Jesus and his disciples. The owner is never mentioned in the scriptures, but whoever they were, they gave Jesus a peaceful place to pray during one of his most anxious hours. This person earned great wealth, but everything they had belonged to the Lord. He and his disciples could come and go as they please, even apparently into the late hours of the night. The Garden of Gethsemane, it's meant to remind us of the imagery of the original garden, the Garden of Eden, right? Where God and human beings, like Jesus and the Father, we all commune together. And the garden was supposed to be a place of creativity and beauty. That command that that God gave, fill the earth and multiply, that was not just about making babies. I mean, it was, but it was also about multiplying the good in the world, expanding on and creatively growing all that God had gifted us. The DNA of the creator God, the crafter of the cosmos, that's in us. So when we exercise creativity and we multiply and we grow, that's a part of God's DNA. Who we do it for will determine whether or not it is of the kingdom or of evil, right? Will we care for creation and offer it to God as his holy place, as his dwelling and place for communion? Or, like the Babylonians who made the Tower of Babel, of Babel, right? Will we create a tower that's engendered out of our own hubris as a testament to ourselves? Or will we humbly offer all that we have to God because it's his anyway? There's a woman mentioned in Acts 16 who's also wealthy. She was a dealer in purple cloth. Her name was Lydia. Purple cloth was extremely rare back then for reasons. And she dealt in it, which means that she was really wealthy. She was the head of a household. But the moment that she was converted, Paul and his companions were welcomed into her home to stay as long as they wanted to. Becoming a part of the family of God means that we show up for one another because nothing we have, no matter how hard we've worked for it, is truly ours anymore. Because all work, all creativity, when brought under the restorative power of Jesus, becomes worship unto him. It's not mine there's this imagery in, in Revelation, right, where, where we, we, we lay our, we, we're given crowns, that Jesus gives us a crown and says, well done, and then we lay our crowns back at his feet. That's not just a one day we'll do that thing. That's a right now we're called to be that thing, right? Okay, also what the scriptures are not saying. In the ancient world, the Hebrews, when they were wandering around the desert, right, 
all of the households gave 10% of what they owned to the Levites, who were the caretakers in the tabernacle, um, and, and they were the priesthood, right? They also gave 10% to be dedicated to celebrations and festivals that they would observe. So 10% went towards corporate worship and the, and, uh, of, the, of the people, as well as the livelihood of those who facilitated worship, and then 10% went to the party fund. <laughs> they took their celebration seriously. But here's the thing. Celebration was a community effort. Everyone was invited to take part in the festivals and the celebration, right? It's not like God doesn't want his people to have a good time or even be like indulgent in their celebrations. Jesus' first miracle for crying out loud was multiplying wine at a wedding. Good choice wine that apparently a lot of people couldn't appreciate at the time for reasons, right? Jesus had a reputation for being a glutton who hung out with a bunch of tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus knew how to have a good time. No, don't, don't take what I said out of context. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. But when God invites his people to celebrate, he made sure that everyone got to participate, right? Jesus' followers didn't have a house, but they always had a place to sleep, and they always had something to eat because the celebration of God invites community. Jesus was always critiqued by the religious elite for not compelling his followers to observe the ritual fast. And Jesus basically told them, hey, look, as long as I'm around, it's like the groom is with the bride. It's a celebration. It's a wedding. We're partying right now. We don't fast during a party. That was Jesus' posture while he walked the earth. Now, Pastor Brett didn't know I was going to say this. But whenever he has a barbecue, he invites all of his neighbors Do you know how guilty I felt about my life when I found out about that? I am not brave enough to do that, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, like, afraid for my life or my safety. What I'm afraid of is people not reading social cues, right? Like, the party's over. You can kind of wrap it up, right? (laughs) Don't judge me. You know. You know you thought the same thing, right? (laughs) I'm afraid of the person that can't take the hint, you know? Do you have any idea how selfless you have to be to invite random people into your home? But man, if that isn't kingdom living, we are celebrating tonight and the party isn't complete without you there. That's the kingdom. And it's easier to share what I have when I understand that what I have is a gift, right? It's easier to share money that's on a gift card than it is to share money that I've earned that's in my bank account, right? Think about it. If you found a $50 Starbucks gift card on the street, half of you'd be paying for the people in the drive-thru line behind you, yeah? Why is it so much easier? Well, because it was a gift. It's easier to share something with you that I didn't earn. And there's the revelation. At the end of the day, I believe that anything that I earn belongs to me. What James is asking us to realize is that when we join the family of God, everything we have belongs to God and exists to further his kingdom. Everything we have is a gift. Everything we earn So who has more peace? Who has more peace? The person who holds loosely all they have because they accept it as a gift? Or the person who clings anxiously to all they own because they feel like they deserve it? Who has more peace? You get it. Today's message is a simple one. Do not hoard your wealth, even if you worked your butt off to earn it. Because when you join the family of God, you make yourself a doulos to Christ, which means everything that you have, you surrender joyfully to God. And that is a liberating feeling when everything you have is for God's glory and his alone. So the call from James, 
is to live generously. Now listen, some of you are getting uncomfortable. Hear me out. This is not a tithing message. This is not you should be giving to the church. I mean, you should, but we can talk about that later. That's fine. If you have questions, come and find me. Whether or not you give to this institution financially is not the point that I'm trying to make here. It's not. This message is about your soul. Because clinging to your wealth, living possessively about what you have will eat away at you. James says that he will eat your flesh like fire. Living possessively about your wealth will make you miserable. It will rob you of your peace because you are clinging to something for your security that is an illusion. This is not about giving to the church. This is about your own well-being. If you feel possessive about what you own, if you cling anxiously to everything that you have because you've earned it, you're not going to have peace in your life. You're not going to have joy. Like the hoarder, God has something better. But maybe you've, you've clamored, you've gathered so many things around you, you've entrapped yourself in, and, and the smell has gotten so bad, but you've lived in there so long that you're used to it. Jesus wants to show you there's a better way. There's a way to live with so much more peace. Surrender it. Because it's not really yours. And I'll give you everything you need. Now, some of the Fox students, they might think, okay, you want me to be generous. Generous with what? I have negative money. <laughs> I'm going into debt to make not enough money to pay back what I'm paying, and I'm eating noodles while I'm doing it. <laughs> Listen, students, young people in the room, generosity doesn't happen when you finally start making a living. Generosity gets trained in you most effectively when you have nothing and you share it anyway. Generosity will be one of the most important lessons you can learn right now because Jesus meant what he said. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to understand and accept the principles of his kingdom. Now there's something that uh, is eschatological in this verse. Eschatological means the study of the end times. I'm not going to totally go there. I'm still new. Um, And there's scholarly debate about this line where James says, in the last days you have hoarded for yourself, right? Now, some would say that in the first century that Christians didn't know when Jesus was coming back, but they did think that it would likely be in their lifetime, some scholars say. But even if it weren't in their lifetime, James understood hoarding your wealth makes you miserable. Not just miserable eventually, but miserable now. It's like corrosion eats away at you. Because really, materialism is worshiping myself. And worshiping any idol is going to make you more anxious. Worshiping idols makes you anxious because they offer counterfeit responses to your needs. Using materialism to worship ourselves, that's what will make us truly miserable. And James is saying, in the last days, you've hoarded your wealth, but life is precious. We have so much more important things to do than to be worried about what we can accumulate. So offer yourself to God. Live like a doulos and live generously because everything you have is a gift anyway. And with that, we're going to come to communion. This teaching is tough. If you're feeling guilty, if you're feeling convicted, just it's not me, it's Jesus. Take it up with him. But listen, I want you to know that I was feeling it too as I was reading this. 
It poked at some uncomfortable places in my life. It did. And again, defiling of the hands, that's what Scripture is supposed to do. And it's not there to condemn you. Understand this. The Scriptures poke at these sensitive places because they want to reveal where we've lost our sense of smell. (laughs) They want to reveal that God has something so much better than what you've been living and what you've been experiencing. And communion is really important. This is something that we do as followers of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet, if you haven't said yes to him, that's okay. I want you to just reflect on these elements while the rest of us take it, okay? Jesus understands what it is to give everything. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. He lived this way. Everything he had, his life was an outpouring of sacrifice to God and to those around him. That was Jesus. Even the language of money made its way into our imagery of the cross and the empty grave. They talk about Jesus paying our debt, a debt that we couldn't pay back ourselves. The wages of sin, the the consequence of us doing things our own way, is that it will kill us. It's death. So Jesus endured death, even though he didn't have to. He endured death so that he could defeat it. And he rose again, and he asked us to follow him into the grave and into new life. And through the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, we have the ability to live in a way that we could not without him. And that's where I want you to experience hope right now. If you were reading this passage with me, if you're hearing this message and you're like, I feel anxious. I feel possessive. I don't like your message. I'm misdirecting a lot of anger at you right now, Pastor Lane. If that's, if that's you, that's okay. Understand this. You don't have to be strong enough to live this way. Christ in you is strong enough to live that way. So lean into him and trust him. And through the Holy Spirit, you will be able to live a life that is of the new birth, the new creation, because he dealt with sin. He dealt with death. Amen? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we pray. Jesus, we thank you that we have the gift of your scriptures to reveal to us all of the ways that we have fallen short of the life that you have for us. Not because you want to condemn us, but because you want something better for us. I pray for every heart in this room, for those of us who are struggling to feel like we can live generously, who are struggling to feel like everything that we have is truly yours. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to live the way that you live. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.